Hello and welcome to the Unworking podcast. I'm Ellie Dowds, Innovation Manager at Unwork, and it's a pleasure to be one of the hosts. In this podcast series, we'll be hosting exclusive discussions with innovators, thought leaders, authors, business leaders, and leading industry professionals who have a unique vision or perspective on the future of work and the workplace. Our mission is to provide a holistic overview of current and future trends, predominantly covering six key areas, people, place, culture, design, technology, and innovation. The past three years have been nothing short of transformative, as the pandemic forced the world to adapt to a new reality. We have seen work and workplace hugely affected, and it's a topic at the forefront of many minds. How we reimagine work in the workplace will be the overarching backbone of this podcast. Today we have a special guest, Kate Milne, the founder and principal consultant of Cardia Health Consulting. Kate's remarkable career spans the realms of health promotion, workplace wellbeing, and age-friendly planning. With extensive experience in areas such as community-based research, healthy living interventions, and online learning, she is a leading expert in promoting healthy and positive ageing. Kate is an experienced keynote speaker, recently speaking at one of our WorkTech events, where she delved into the essential topic of fostering age-friendly workplaces. Her insights on age diversity, inclusion, and well-being in hybrid working environments are both timely and valuable, especially as organisations grapple with the changing dynamics of their workforce. In this episode, we'll be privileged to speak to Kate and explore her expertise and her visionary perspective on the future of work, with a focus on supporting women's health at work and fostering age-friendly workplace cultures. So Kate, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. So I've already had the privilege of hearing you speak recently at our worktechs.com event, Um, but for our listeners that haven't had that privilege, please could you share a bit about your background and your journey and what led you to founding Cardia Health Consulting? Yeah, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, So my work really started in vocational rehab about 25 years ago. And so for people who don't know what vocational rehab is, it's working with folks who are off work uh, managing an illness. And it's working not only with employees, but also with employers to help people get back to the workplace. And I was lucky enough to work in a really interesting setting on a multidisciplinary team with a physician and a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And we worked in this cognitive behavioral model, working with multiple dimensions of health. So my background is in exercise physiology, but I got to move beyond just the physical part of rehab. So beyond just things like exercise and nutrition and also um, look at things like mental health, social health, emotional health. Um, The people that we worked with had complex and difficult to manage illnesses. And so it was a really extensive program. And I love the work, but I really decided that I wanted to reach people on a much bigger scale and more upstream in the process. So before people got sick, I wanted to work on the preventative side. So I went back to school and then I built my business in health promotion. And health promotion, again, for people who might not understand what that term means, is it's really the process of enabling people to take control over their own health. And it focuses mainly on populations of people. So rather than just working one-on-one, it's looking at large populations. 
my population very quickly became older adults and aging. I worked for many years with community-based research projects in healthy aging, and that was working with government and cities and working on age-friendly planning, helping not only government and cities, but also organizations plan for an aging population. But a few years ago, I worked on a really interesting research project that went on for several years. We had uh, multiple peer-reviewed publications from the research and just watching the impact of small lifestyle changes in our research subjects made me want to pursue this idea more. And so we were working with women in midlife. We wanted to work with women much earlier in the aging process and work on decreasing some of their chronic disease risk, on decreasing their fall risk, and then of course their fracture risk related to falls. And all of this was about just these small lifestyle changes. And so of course I wanted to reach a large population of women and, and where you find that group of women, that midlife and older women, um, is in the workplace. And so that put my focus back on the workplace and working with women in midlife and beyond. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And the, the topic of exercise physiology and health promotion is something that resonates with me personally. So it's really interesting to hear how that integrates with sort of healthy aging, especially in the workplace. So, Kate, help us set the scene in terms of age in the workplace. So the gender gap is obviously a persistent issue. Could you connect the dots for us and explain how the workplace gender gap ties into the broader discussion of sort of age-friendly workplaces? And what are the current stats that we should be aware of? Yeah, so the gender gap is real, of course. It's such a big issue. Um, one of the most shocking analogies that I've heard recently is that for my daughter, so my daughter is 22, mm -hmm. and if she was to have a daughter, so my granddaughter would still not reach wage parity. Um, oh, so multiple wow. generations of women are still on track to not close that wage gap if we go on the trajectory that we're on today. And in fact, today, women in Iceland are on strike for equal pay. They're uh, recreating their strike that they... Um, had in the 70s uh, to bring awareness to this issue. And I think, you know, maybe we need a little bit more of this in different countries around the world. If we think about this in terms of aging, women, of course, as they get older, are much more subject to gendered ageism. And so they tend to suffer a bit more from the gender gap than women who are younger in their careers. And why I say this is because if we look at women as they get older, they're less likely to be promoted, they're less likely to be hired, they're less likely to be called back for interviews, they're more likely to suffer job losses. And so there are a number of things going on just related to age and gendered ageism that women have more of the uh, influence, I guess, of the gender gap as they age. And part of this is why women will, they'll try to uh, 
suppress this idea that they're getting older, um, unfortunately. And this can be related to all sorts of things in our careers. And it's one of the reasons that women are not talking a lot about menopause. Um, if we look at just the number of university grads, this large workforce participation, there's still the gender gap across the board, but again, it gets worse as women get older. And you, you touched upon menopause there. So, I mean, that's a topic that's not widely discussed despite the population of premenopausal women growing. I mean, the average age to go through, I, I believe is sort of 40 to 42, right? Um, but can you shed some light on why you think menopause and related women's health conditions remain somewhat taboo? Yeah, and I, as I mentioned, I think menopause is one of those markers of a woman getting older. It's a, a marker of the end of her reproductive years, and sometimes women are seen as less valuable um, as they get older. It's, you know, also, I guess, taboo because it's a physical uh, issue that maybe people feel a little bit of embarrassment around. Yeah. If you think of it like, puberty, but in reverse, mm -hmm. some people are uncomfortable talking about those kind of issues. But I think the bigger, the bigger issue for menopause in gen general is this idea of uh, really from a societal standpoint that we have a big mm -hmm. focus on anti-aging, on the importance of youth and menopause signals to the world that we are getting older. Uh, there's no way of escaping what age we might be if we're going through menopause, no matter how young we look. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do agree as well. I think this importance is often overlooked, especially in the workplace. Um, do you feel that there's been a shift in recognising the importance of age-friendly environments? And why do you think most organisations sort of neglect this? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I've been asked that quite a few times recently. Are there good examples? Are there mm -hmm. a lot of organizations working in this space? And I wish I could say that it was something that is happening in a lot of organizations. But the number that I saw recently is that 95% of employers have not developed anything specific around um, being more age inclusive and the same employers in the same survey felt that their workplaces were age inclusive. So they oh, had wow. <laughs> um, but 83% thought that they were being age inclusive. So I think part of the issue is maybe employers have not connected the dots of what's going on and why maybe they're losing some of their older employees, some of the more seasoned talent from their organizations, um, because a lot of the things that people leave organizations for, they don't really talk about. And that's especially true for women. If they're dealing with, you know, caregiver responsibilities and menopausal symptoms and, you know, a number of things that they're feeling not very supported, uh, supported with, they will leave to go to different organizations. During the height of the pandemic, women were just leaving and not coming back to work. But now they're shifting organizations and they're looking for organizations with better well-being support, more flexible workplaces and um, other things that support them as they get older. 
And yeah, like you say, women that are leaving the workforce in the highest numbers at the moment are in those sort of mid-management jobs and it sort of goes way up when we get to C-suite. And I think it is because work is usually the first thing that gives and it's not because work's necessarily the biggest stressor, but it's more being able to manage everything at once. And I guess here's where employers come in. Um, so looking at it from a healthy ageing specialist perspective, what can employers do to really support these women? I mean, I know you said a lot of them feel like they are supporting them, but they're not. Um, so what can they really do? Yeah, so there's a number of different things that employers can do. But I guess the way that I very generally think about this is um, in four ways. So I would start with some sort of audit um, or assessment to understand where your workplace is currently, what is going on in terms of age and what's going on with women um, in your workplace. So if you have things like uh, pregnancy support or maternity leave, do you also have a menopausal support program um, or time that women can take, flexible time that women can take around that time of life? What do your hiring practices look like? And I mean, in practice, not the policy, but what's actually happening. Are you hiring people in these older age categories? Because I think sometimes there's really a big focus on the younger age groups bringing in sort of fresh talent and um, and focusing on that age or that group. And one of the problems is we just don't have the number of bodies anymore coming in at at younger ages, the fertility rates are low, we have an aging population, and there really is a big opportunity here to leverage our aging workforce and aging population. So doing that audit and understanding where your organization is currently around the aging workforce and what's going on for women and support for some of the things that might be going on in their life. I would then also think about teaching. So some sort of information for leaders around the aging workforce. And part of that might be just reducing some of the stereotypes and ageism in the workplace, and especially related to women around gendered ageism. Best case scenario would be that employers actually act and they put some programs in place that are specific to lifespan well-being. So even thinking about things like our exercise programs at work, are they supportive of every age group? Um, they're not always. The ones that I see are focused on a much younger population. And then I would want to evaluate. So making sure what you're doing is actually working and it's working for the people that you are trying to support. So making sure that you're asking that question on both ends. So during the assessment and then also during evaluation. So that'd be sort of the general way, I guess, to look at it. Um, but then also thinking about things like flexible work arrangements, um, more inclusive environments and, uh, and again, just going back to that lifespan well-being. Yeah, and I, I guess the, the great reimagining of the workplace, as we call it today, has led to a lot more flexibility in where we work, how we work, um, and it really, can really impact a woman's psychological safety. So how important do you think this is to a woman's lifestyle in terms of work-life balance and productivity in the workplace? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question around psychological safety, because I know the one thing that is evident from looking at flexible work, for instance, which, you know, it's in a recent report, um, they found that flexible work, of course, is important to everyone. It's not just Mm -hmm. for women, but flexible work, I think, works well for women as they get older. And one of the the issues that I read about around psychological safety is that when women have access to this flexible work or at least um, work that they have control over, so if they have control over where they are working, they tend to feel more psychologically safe. And that's especially true for women of color and women in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so I think there are some, again, those those underlying issues that maybe we, we don't see as being as obvious, but they do become things that are really important um, when we look at the bigger picture. So for, for women going through this midlife change, um, uh, I guess you could call it, I mean, self-care is usually one of the first things that goes out the window um, and the things that are typically considered as nice to have. So sort of having yoga and exercise and these are things that sort of get left behind, um, which then in turn can make the situation worse as this could lead down the path of chronic illness. Um, So could you shed some light on how important it is to sort of really make make this as part of a, a woman's lifestyle? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that question. I think that one is so key. And of course, as an exercise physiologist, I'm very biased towards exercise. But I always say if we had any other medication that had the level of research that had um, application across so many health conditions we would give it to everyone. We would prescribe it to every single person. Uh, We know that exercise is important for not only our physical health, but also our mental health. As women get older, exercise is so important. And we tend to be more sedentary, uh, especially in the workplace. And again, if we're working from home, sometimes it's easy to spend hours and hours and hours in a chair. Yeah, the self-care piece goes out the window because I think it's that idea, again, that something's got to give. And this is the crux of what happens in midlife is that many women get into a situation where something has to go and self-care will easily go out the window for a lot of women because they're taking care of other people and taking care of their work. But it really is key to managing menopausal symptoms to reducing our chronic disease risk that goes up in midlife and especially around the menopausal transition and also to managing our mental health. So it we can't overlook how important it is in that mental health piece when we have a focus on mental health in the workplace. There are multiple studies that we can see that Uh, exercise can be as important as antidepressants. Now, that's not to dismiss antidepressants or to ever encourage anybody not to take medication, but the idea is that exercise is a key piece of managing mental health. So making sure that we have appropriate programs as well as women get older um, is really important. We're not usually considering things like bone health for example, it's something small, but it's it's profound that women have changes in their bone health as they get older, 
are your exercise programs adapted for considerations like that? Um, so I, again, not only exercise, but thinking about things like um, support programs around menopause, around uh, men mental health support, around mindfulness training, around nutrition, all of these things will help with the menopausal transition. We know that when women are supported in this way, they do better. And um, they're very small things that we could put in place in the workplace, and yet they would make an enormous difference. Just reducing sedentary behavior, for instance, just reducing the amount of time that people are sitting makes a difference on their mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So all, all and are there any companies that stand out to you as doing this really well? Um, and any sort of best practices that you could um, share with us? Yeah, I would, I would say that um, there are, are a few companies that are putting some of these pieces in place. So um, Lego, for instance, is working on a menopausal support program. Microsoft has um, some programs in place around an aging workforce. Um, uh, Marriott has done some things around aging. <laughs> so it's happening, but it's happening slowly. Uh, and as you know, in, in the UK, and I think you probably heard me talk about this at the um, Work Tech Conference, but the UK tends to lead in some of these areas. We look to the UK from North America in terms of what's going on with healthy aging and older adults. And the UK has really had quite a big push on menopause in the workplace and working on legislation around menopause in the workplace. It hasn't yet been successful, but it's definitely brought a lot of attention to the importance of addressing menopause in the workplace with employers. Um, that being said, I think there are some things that we can think about in terms of um, ideas around aging in the workplace and, and things that we can put into place. One of the ideas would be reverse mentoring. Um, so looking at both uh, mentoring from older employees to younger employees, but younger employees also uh, mentoring older employees for all sorts of different things, um, just bringing those teams together. And in that regard, having those age diverse teams, thinking about how we have a mix of people working together because it really does increase productivity. Um, and then I just will keep going back to that idea of hiring practices. Um, you know, that's a best practice to me. Are you looking at who you're hiring who's staying at work and who's leaving and what are the realities in practice as opposed to just policy. Building upon these best practices, and I know you mentioned some of the stats earlier, comparing sort of what employees think they're doing versus what they're actually doing for their employees. Um, how can organisations measure the success of the strategies that they are implementing and sort of make sure that they are catering for the, the ageing workforce? Yeah, I think it, it's beyond just looking at what's going on in the workplace and, and moving towards asking employees. So not asking in a general, <clears throat> pardon me, in a general survey kind of setting. I mean, surveys are great, but 
I think most people know there's a fair amount of survey fatigue, but maybe asking employees in a smaller setting, maybe in focus groups, maybe um, in ways that they feel comfortable and safe answering questions. Because of course, you know, many employees are worried that their answers to uh, particularly information around health will be used against them. So really setting the stage that you're trying to collect information um, in a way that is building a program or is for improving conditions rather than just finding out information that could be used in a punitive way. Yeah, absolutely. And so to, to wrap things up today, so looking at both the past, present and the future, um, what advice do you have for workspaces seeking to maximise their workforces? And what's your vision of what you'd like to see incorporated into workplaces 50 years from now? Yeah, um, I think that maybe workplaces and employers really need to look at the value of the aging population, that this is an enormous opportunity to leverage this large group of people, many of whom want to stay at work. I have spoken to multiple women who, you know, tell me in confidence that they are no longer able to even think about advancing at work, that they are facing maybe being packaged out um, and being replaced by younger talent. And so that kind of mentality of thinking about this big younger population coming in and then packaging out older employees, it just won't be sustainable. There's just not the number of people to make that work. And so as that big balloon of the aging population increases at work and, you know, in the G7, that's going to be 25% of our workforce in seven years um, will be people over the age of 55. So how can we leverage this better? And part of it is just very small ways of supporting their employees. So, you know, going back to those things that I talked about earlier, making sure that we have good lifespan well-being programs, that we have good support programs around aging. And really looking at, I guess, if my vision for 50 years from now would be that, you know, of course, I would hope that we would have closed the gender gap at that point, but also that we'll look at employees across the lifespan. So I'm focusing on one particular segment of the population because that's my area of expertise, but aging occurs from birth. So um, looking at lifespan, so what's going on for employees as they come into the workforce and what are some of the, the life issues that we need to address and right up until the time they leave the workforce. So if we could have a continuum of support, that would be ideal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I hope that it does become more of a prevalent topic in, in the future of the workplace as well. And um, hopefully more people do sort of start to speak about it and organisations start to cater for it in the right way. And um, so Kate, thank you so much for sharing your insights for us today. If people want to find out more more about you, then where should they where should they go and where can they find yeah, you? So they could go to my website, um, or to LinkedIn or please just send me an email. I'm happy to chat with any, anyone about um, any of the topics that we talked today. Amazing. And we'll, we'll pop all of the details in the description below for our listeners. 
Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us and hopefully we'll speak to you soon. If anything discussed in this episode has piqued your curiosity and your desire to delve deeper into the future of work and the workplace, we invite you to reach out to us. Connect to us by sending us an email to infounwork.com. We value your engagement and appreciate you being a listener of the Unworking podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking content in the future.